0: Hello and welcome to this season two of the From the Moon podcast with me, David Pleasant. This year has seen the opening of the 23rd International Exhibition of Triennale Milano. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, an introduction to mysteries. And so on each episode, we try to unpack a different component of this quite literally unknowably vast subject matter. Planetary personhood proposes radical space decolonization. To explore ways of not destroying another planet. The project suggests personhood for the planet Mars. What do we think that we know about the universe? And could or should we even be attempting to know everything? Perhaps we can learn to coexist with life's mysteries. We'll be asking all these questions and many more besides here on From the Moon. During the course of this series, we'll be speaking to artists, designers and scientists who will guide me, your host, on this journey through knowledge and understanding. On this, episode three, we are going to explore the space between the reality, or all that which is supposed to be scientific fact, and that which is a purposefully invented creation, something which is ultimately fictional. Fictional. It's hard to know when or how this human need to straddle art and science, to mix proven knowledge with imagination might have started. Certainly ancient times were filled with myths and legends that were consciously out of this world. But as our scientific knowledge expanded, so did our hunger for fictionalised realities, part out of a need for cultural stimulation, part to attempt to fill the void of what might have been unknown. By the age of the Enlightenment, we start to see what could be called science fiction in literature, with works like English philosopher Francis Bacon's New Atlantis from 1627, and French novelist and playwright Cyrano de Bergerac's Comic History of the States and Empires of the Moon in 1662. Later, the scientific advancements of the Industrial Revolution heralded a romanticist backlash and dystopian visions of the future, such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1888. And then we get to Jules Verne, who was noted for his attention to detail and scientific accuracy, especially in his most famous work 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870. But the dawn of cinema and filmmaking no doubt had the greatest impact. In 1927, Fritz Lang's Metropolis was the first feature length science fiction film. And whizzing through, we get to Ishiro Honda's Godzilla from 1954, and then to the mesmerisingly stylistic 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick in 1968. Then, scarcely a decade later, in 1977, we get to George Lucas and Star Wars, a vastly popular universe of science fiction that still captivates contemporary audiences all over the world. But as well as entertainment and escapism, science fiction has always served as a cultural mirror reflecting the aspirations, preoccupations and subversions of the real world. The fantasy worlds that are created for us say as much about real-life societies than the artistic vision of one particular author. This type of cultural inquiry through the tool of fiction leads us to our next guests. Non-Human Nonsense is a research-driven design and art studio. In their words, they create near-future fabulations and experiments, somewhere between utopia and dystopia. I'm Linnea. Leo. And I'm Phillips. They seek to transmute our relationship to the non-human by embracing the contradictory and paradoxical, telling stories that open the public imagination to futures that currently seem impossible. The studio consists of Leo Fidjelland, Linnea Waglund, and Philips Stanislavskis and is based between Berlin and Stockholm. Leo began by telling us about the project Planetary Personhood, a show now at the Triennale Milano's Unknown Unknowns exhibition. The music you are hearing was composed especially for this project by Jonas Thunberg,
1: the project called planetary Personal and it's a it's a kind of interplanetary campaign that's pursuing radical space decolonization. Our practice is centered around the non-human and the, the relationship to the non-human. So we were trying to find initially kind of what would be the being that would be the furthest away from human, you know, something that was kind of uh, non-living, non-sentient, something like that. And then we we were working around stones for a while, and then we thought. Uh, if we can kind of find a way to change our relationship to that, maybe it would be uh, easier to also relate differently to animals and ecology.
2: We got invited to do a project about Mars, and we realized that Mars is a place where there is a lot of stones, almost only stones. <laughs> so we thought that, that would be a really interesting place to discuss these topics. So yes. uh,
1: our initial idea was actually to apply for citizenship for a stone and to kind of question, you know, the idea of uh, do we have to include uh, uh, non-humans into our systems, or is that also a way of kind of reducing them, you know? And then we thought, uh, oh, maybe it would be great to have a, a meteorite from Mars to kind of give citizenship to a meteorite from Mars, because that would be a sort of alien uh, way of, of existing. So maybe it would provide some sort of opening to other ways of uh, thinking about, uh, you know, how how do we exist and how are we related to and interdependent on that, which is uh, also non-sentence.
0: Planetary personhood, a universal declaration of Martian rights. Planetary personhood proposes radical space decolonization to explore ways of not destroying another planet. The project suggests personhood for the planet Mars and considers the possibility of solidarity with the entities already there, the star.
3: The central thing in the project is a universal declaration for Martian rights, uh, which is a document that we have written with different chapters uh, that uh, ask for attention to certain points of, for example, recognizing all Martian beings, uh, allowing Mars to remain Mars, and asking also for, perhaps uh, inspired by a movement in New Zealand, uh, which is called the Rats for Nature uh, movement, uh, we wanted to imagine what would it would mean to give uh, rights to the planet Mars and all of its inhabitants, as it is done in New Zealand for national parks, for mountains and rivers. And uh, in this kind of uh, setup, there's a council of guardians or custodians that are speaking for the natural entity, and we were thinking also about like who would be the
0: representatives of Mars that would be speaking for it in, let's say, court. And so non-human nonsense created an installation which introduced this declaration of Martian rights to the public through a two-channel video installation, a screen with collaged images, and most strikingly, a huge inflatable Mars with a face projected onto its surface. Also central to the declaration is the notion of citizenship and so the studio decided to make a passport for a Martian meteorite residing on Earth, Allen Hills 84001. Found in Antarctica in 1984, when first examined, the rock seemed to have traces of fossilised remains of life. This was later thought to be too unclear to be confirmed, but nonetheless, non-human nonsense presented Allen, the meteorite, as an entity that is trying to tell us something about its home planet.
2: Today, rock 84001 speaks to us across all those billions of years and millions of miles. It speaks of the possibility of life. We will continue to listen closely to what it has to say
0: that was the voice of none other than former US President Bill Clinton, making a statement in 1997 about the meteorite that non-human nonsense have named Alan Hills 84001. Back to Leo at the non-human nonsense studio in Berlin.
1: So we're kind of playing with this anthropomorphic thing, you know, like putting a face on Mars maybe enables us to relate to it as if it was a human or trying to... Uh, relate to the world. I, I guess it's about extractivism, know, that we see that when we normally talk about uh, space and there's this whole thing of of going to space and colonizing it, right? And uh, I guess we saw parallels related to, you know, how how colonization on Earth also is driven by this like this extractivist mindset to go to somewhere and if you see the environment as something inert, to try to extract as much value as you can.
0: And this brings us back to the way in which fictional reality, or fictional science, can be a way in which we envisage a completely different world and potential future. The Planetary Personhood Project can definitely be seen as leaning towards a utopian vision of what could, or maybe what should, be the way in which we explore and engage with space. In many ways, to treat a rock as a sentient citizen with rights is even a political act. In the words of non-human nonsense, this project and others like it perform what they call radical thought-based decolonisation. Indeed, if we go back to many of the narratives that we see in the culture of science fiction and some of the examples we looked at earlier, so many reflect the harmful reality of the context of where they emerged. And with our own very contemporary cultural gaze, we can see that so many of those films, whether knowingly or unknowingly, express a colonial, exploitative, asymmetrical power structure. From Star Wars and its notions of empires, republics and the ultimate objectification of non-human populations to the Planet of the Apes, which since its beginning in 1968 is a science fiction franchise which crudely reflects the racist, still segregated reality of modern America. So, is the aim of planetary personhood to reject or reverse this skewed and outdated science fiction narrative?
1: Yeah, I guess we were really trying to explore that uh, tension somehow. Because in some ways, yeah, we also recognize that there is a—it feels like colonial somehow, you know, or like uh, oppressive somehow. And this is really this empire speaking that you're talking about. But at the same time, space colonization. There's, I mean, space exploration and. It's also like uh, driven by kind of curiosity and uh, just these very sort of uh, open kind of parts of the human mind somehow. And I guess we were trying to see how can we go to space but without the colonialism somehow. So I guess the project is trying to create it's almost like a paradox. You know, we start out with something that's maybe a more reasonable suggestion that If we would recognize the entire planet Mars as an independent legal person, that would mean that we could uh, kind of practically and legally maybe uh, prevent the most destructive forms of extractivism and the most destructive forms of resource capitalism somehow. And then from that, we kind of see okay, does that mean then that we have to change our way of relating to the stones? Or, you know, if we make Mars completely responsible for its own decisions somehow the planet Mars ultimately decides for itself. How do we then relate to the Martians or the rocks that are there? And how does that then collide with Earth? Does that mean that we have to give citizenship to rocks or something like that, you know? And then it kind of ends up with being a story that enables us to think about these things from uh, multiple
2: perspectives, I think. In this first meeting of the Mars Guardian Council, in accordance with paragraph 24c of the Guardian Rules of Procedure, I will act as an interpreter of the will and intention of Martian meteorite Alan Hills 84001. I thereby kindly request Alan to begin your message.
0: We are hearing another element of the Planetary Personhood installation at the Unknown Unknowns exhibition. This time it's the voice of Despina Alleglo interpreting a message from our Martian rock Alan Hills 84001. And these sounds are NASA recordings of the winds of Mars and the rumbling of Martian quakes.
2: There's never been a time that I didn't exist. You are all rocks. Afraid of them. You think you already know what's out there. You will miss much of it that is the end of the transmission
1: one of the central things is also if you think about humanity we normally think about it as human bodies somehow but if you look closer you see that if it wasn't for the animals or the sunlight or even the rocks you know there wouldn't be any humanity at all so there's actually this kind of really deep interconnected the link somehow, where where what the human is is really constructed and, and supported by the non-humans, that the, we are the rocks somehow, you know?
0: Or the stones yeah. are our ancestors. Physically speaking, at least, the stones really are our ancestors. And thinking about the materiality of humanity straight away brings us to some very philosophical notions something we explored in Season 1 of From the Moon last year, when philosopher Emanuele Cocha questioned how to define the tiniest of natural entities, the virus. Is it a living being, or is it a chemical structure, he asked. We'll be hearing more from Cocha later in the series, but back to the non-human nonsense studio now. Given the very imaginative, sometimes fictional, sometimes speculative nature of their approach, were they, as children, fascinated by science fiction?
1: Yeah, we were kind of discussing these questions a little bit before, and then I think the immediate answer was just no, kind of. that, we, <laughs> <laughs> that None of us were like, no, not really. But then uh, when we thought about it a little bit more, we, we saw that there is actually at least a few kind of stories that... Uh, have influenced our way of thinking or
2: yeah when I was a kid I was reading a lot of fiction and I was very much into like magical realism when it comes into this small like magical things but in our kind of setting and that I found it very inspiring I was also hanging out a lot in the forest and like relating to maybe two sticks as my small I had the little snake god, for example, and stuff like this. There was a stick that I was... Mm. And I had stones There was people. And I guess uh, in that way, I was relating to fiction and to also seeing this... Like, that's what you do as a kid, I guess. But yeah. I think that still inspires me. I feel like almost my living and being a grown-up is, for me, all about trying to become a kid again in some way. And I feel like our practice is a lot about this for me, at least, mm. to, like, remember how it is to relate to other beings in a more like curious and playful way.
0: So we are starting to see how rather than merely being a flight of the imagination, much of the exploration both in the mind and in the science of the universe can creatively coexist. Science and art both serve a purpose. And so to end, I wanted to hear from non-human nonsense about this relationship between fact-based research and development and the more abstract, loose world of the visual arts. Yeah, I
3: think uh, it's uh, important to have these collaborations and somehow keeping them separate is also, it's relatively a new thing if you think about the history of uh, humankind And artists used to be also uh, doing the work of scientists. If you think about, I don't know, the Renaissance, for example. And yeah, there's more and more initiatives where also people who have been working for many years only in this bubble of scientific expertise have been uh, collaborating with artists. And these initiatives are growing a lot and we see them popping up all the time. I think uh, both sides are very interested in working together Uh, We are interested because uh, there's so much interesting knowledge to gain out of it and different insights. And scientists as well, they are interested in hearing uh, what we are doing. At least it seems like they're always quite excited to talk with us as well.
1: Yeah, I think that the collaboration can be very fruitful because we are working with speculative practices, you know, where you're trying to relate to the future somehow but relate to the future as a reflection of the present so we're always trying to find a balance between making uh, stories that are realistic so therefore you know collaborating with scientists is very important because then uh, it gives like a sort of basis or a foundation for the project somehow and I think that for them it's also very fruitful to collaborate with us because that makes them kind of free of always trying to find evidence for everything that they're thinking you know it's kind of If you're always only looking at the the numbers, then you're missing out on certain things. And I think that many scientists are also really fascinated and interested in in the implications of what they're doing. And that in this collaboration between art and science, there's this really fruitful collaboration where you can really deal with the implications of the the science.
0: That was Leo and before that Phillips and Linnea of research-driven design and art studio non-human nonsense arguing that the idea to mix art and science is far from nonsensical. And that brings us to the end of this episode, in which we have explored the scientific and fictionalised side of culture. This podcast is brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, with production support from Pale Blue Dot. Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama.